You're listening to After Images, a podcast for cinephiles that takes a deep dive into moving images. Each episode features a special guest who is invited to explore a film of their choice. After Images is hosted by film writers Franck Bouleg and Marisa C. Hayes. Today's episode explores Ted Kochev's 1971 cult film, Wake in Fright, with our guest, Dr. Lindsay Hallam. An international co-production between Australia, the UK and the US, Wake in Fright depicts a school teacher named John Grant, stationed in a tiny Australian town. Attempting to reach Sydney, he never makes it beyond the Yabba, in the outback. His summer holiday spiral out of control as he drinks and gambles with the locals, falling deeper and deeper into despair. Wake in Fright was one of two Australian films nominated for the Grand Prix at the Cannes Film Festival alongside Nicolas Rogue's Walkabout in 1971. To guide us down the rabbit hole of Wake in Fright, we're joined by Dr. Lindsay Hallam, a senior lecturer in film at the University of East London. She is the author of Screening the Marquis de Sade, Pleasure, Pain and the Transgressive Body in Film, 2012, Devil's Advocates, Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, 2018, and is currently researching a monograph on revenge in Australian horror cinema. So hello to uh, and welcome to this new episode of After Images. We are joined today by Dr. Lindsay Hallam, who's going to discuss Waking Fright with us. Uh, and as usual, we start this podcast with uh, the question, uh, why did you choose this film and uh, what does it mean to you? So I chose this film when you first asked me, I was like, oh. I just I I just couldn't think of anything and then I thought well actually at the moment I'm working on uh, my next book which is on Australian horror cinema and uh specifically the uh theme of revenge in Australian horror cinema and um how it relates especially to Australia's history or Australia's history of colonization or invasion um and so I see that you know being so prevalent throughout a lot of a lot of these genre films and Wake and Fright kind of is a very significant film within Australian film history in general. Uh, before the 1970s, uh, there were kind of some films being made in Australia. In fact, you could say the first feature length film was made in Australia, which was the story of the Kelly Gang that was made in 1906. But the film industry had never really taken off. More it was a case of sometimes foreigners like from Britain or from America would come and make films here. Um, the Ealing, Ealing Studios come, come to some films here in Australia. Um, there were some kind of Hollywood films um, like The Sundowners that was made in the early 1960s. Um, but yeah, there wasn't really much of a film industry itself in Australia. Then in the 60s, they started, they had an experimental film fund and they um, opened up um, the National Film and Television and Radio School, um, which is called AFTERS. And uh, so in the 70s, you started to get more films being made in Australia. And it kicked off what you could almost say is like an Australian new wave. Um, but really what kicked it off is in 1971, you had Wake and Fright, 
and you had Walkabout. But the irony, of course, with both of those films is that they are made by non-Australian directors. So Wake and Fright is made by Ted Kotcheff, who's a Canadian, and Walkabout, of course, is made by Nicholas Rogue, who's a, the great British filmmaker. Um, but yet these these films, you know, you definitely get this, I guess, outsider's perspective of Australia. Um, but in some ways, I don't know, like, that it maybe gave permission for Australians to make films about themselves. There is definitely, I think, in the Australian character, what's referred to as the cultural cringe, that there is this idea that, you know, Australia is, well, as this kind of British colony, that we're kind of always in the shadow um, of of Britain, that we're just kind of supposed to, supposed to be just like Britain, but, you know, in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, also, I think, you know, growing up in Australia, I can say that uh, American culture also really, really dominated. Um, I, I grew up mostly watching American television, American films. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so we have that. And, and when it comes to actually Australian content, Australians don't really tend to see Australian films. Um, or there, there, there is that cringe. And even I think sometimes myself, especially when I moved back over here to the UK, like when you would hear Australian accent or when, when I would hear my voice recorded, I'd be like, oh my God, I sound so Aussie. And it was almost like, oh, but there is that aspect to it. And I think what's interesting with Wake and Fright is that um, when that film came out in Australia, it did really, really badly because and there was this this there's this story that jack thompson who's in the film he always talks about in one of the early screenings of the film that people were shouting at the screen that's not us that's not us and apparently jack thompson would say sit down mate that that is us that you know that it was bringing to light this this aspect of australian um australian characters particularly i think australian masculinity I mean, that's another big thing that comes up across in Australia. You have this idea of what they call mateship. This, yeah, the you know, the you know, the kind of and it and it does, I think, you know, extend to you know, there is a lot of um, uh, yeah, misogyny in Australian society. I mean, you only have to look at we had our first Australian Prime Minister of about a over a decade ago, Julia Gillard, and what she had to, uh, you know, put up with was kind of like hair raising when you look back at some of the you know some of the things that happen so i think there is so all in wake and fright there is this a definite um depiction or exploration of this type of white australian male that lives in these rural communities and this idea of um yeah that they're all kind of yeah they're all they're all just what we have this term Aussie larrikin oh they're just messing around but actually there's something so dark about it and uh I think and the main character in the film he also mentions at one point the aggressive hostility that there is and it's so and of course alcohol is central to all of it and you just see um yeah the that they you know this idea of these these white men because you know it's very noticeable that there are pretty much no indigenous people in this film and uh, and and it is this this you know it often it depicts this place you know the abba as this like hell on earth but it wasn't always a hell on earth it's been created they've created this this kind of health hellscape um but also there's also I think what's great about the film is there's a real ambivalence to it as well at the same time. The problem with John is that he feels like he's superior to everyone there. 
but then he he becomes just like them um yeah it's just there's just so much of this film that's why i'm so like uh interested and in what your reaction was to it because you know i come from it with you know this yeah having watched i watched it the first time in australia in 2009 because for years they had um lost the film they yeah there was only really some really bad copies uh prints available and they managed the editor tony buckley went out to try and find a, a original print of the film and it was found i think somewhere in pittsburgh and the, the cans were labeled for destruction and so he um, managed to save them and took them back to the National Film and Sound Archive, and it was released in two thousand, re-released in two thousand nine, theatrically. So I saw it for the first time at a cinema in two thousand nine at um, the Revelation Perth um, International Film Festival because I'm from Perth. So uh, yeah, so the first time I watched it, uh, yeah, seeing it at the cinema, and it's just it was just a revelation. But yeah. Um, I, I, I am, yeah, like I said, I'm so interested in what you thought of it. <laughs> There's so much uh, to unpack, I think, in what you've just yeah. said. So many interesting things to discuss. But yeah, yeah. I'm humbled if you want our lowly opinion because yeah. you've been to Australia. But I think for my part, I was really, really struck by the sensorial qualities of the film. This relationship to landscape as something so dry, but that contrasted with the liquid. I mean, there's always alcohol, as you mentioned, but also the sweat. And it's a very visceral film in terms of how you feel the sensation of the landscape and the way that it's kind of going to go into the interiority of this lead character, mm. lead him down a labyrinth in relationship to this landscape. But then as someone who's never visited Australia, I also was very aware of the fact that this was seen through the eyes of a director who is not Australian, and I don't know what his relationship to the country was. And I think a lot about that in contrast to Walkabout, which is a film that I love, but once again, another you know cult film that has been seen through the eyes of someone who's not Australian. And just really wondering a lot about, is there a certain exoticism associated with the landscape? I mean, we know this from Australian cinema, you know, the interest in, in animals and insects that we don't have here in Europe or America, and that often being a trope that gets played on. And sometimes I wonder how exaggerated it is. And then I have Australian films, uh, Australian friends who, who will tell me, oh, I've been in hospital because I was bit by a spider. And I thought, oh, well, I guess there really is something to living, you know, within a certain landscape that's very different from the one that that Frank and I live in so yeah I guess I was also really curious to know what Australians think of this film and uh, in what way it might accurately in some sense be a kind of allegory or metaphor for certain aspects of life in that landscape and then what exactly has been really exoticized and and mythologized maybe and um uh, in relationship with what you've just said concerning misogyny and violence in the film um, uh, I was thinking, I was wondering to what extent this was not similar to what uh, is usually depicted uh, concerning the United States in the 19th century, the wild, wild west, uh, uh, if there was somehow a link between the two. And I'm thinking here of uh, uh, Steven Pinker, who wrote a book about violence, and uh, he, one of the elements he noticed that uh, led to a lowering of violence in the West of the United States was the arrival of women, uh, mm. which led to somehow the domestication of those wild men. And you hardly see any woman in the film 
so um, I mean, that's a bit messy, but uh, I was thinking mm. of these elements and I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, answer to uh, what um, I'm thinking about in relationship with the wild. Yeah. Well, I think just to go back to Marissa's question about what Australians think. So I grew up in the suburbs and so, uh, but even in the suburbs, yeah, like you mentioned, um, we, we are in Perth, there's redback spiders, which can kill you. And in fact, so my parent, my, we moved, so I was born in Manchester and we moved to Australia when I was about two years old in the, in the eighties. And, um, not long after we moved there, um, my father was bitten by a redback spider and ended up in the hospital. So yeah, so even just in the suburbs, and I remember one time we had like a, a blue tongue lizard came, was in our laundry, and it went down the back of the washing machine, and we were trying to get it out, and it like pooped at the back, and it was just like, yeah, just a, a blue tongue lizard just, you know, is in is in your laundry. Um yeah, so you grow up with you know that yeah. Just sometimes there is this whole thing of like any the anything thing can can kill you there, um, but uh, yeah. But growing up in the, in the suburbs, there I, there's definitely a divide because yeah, I grew up in the suburbs in Perth, which is the capital city of Western Australia. So all the cities and most of the population live around the coast. So there's a definite I think divide city like rural urban divide in Australia. Um, and that the, and waking fright absolutely is dealing with that divide the fact that he want you know the main character he wants to go to sydney sydney symbolizes something and it's interesting that you also have yabba which is also they also define as a city but it's still this seems very not a city that most of us you know would think would think of as being this kind of yeah a, a modern city um and so having talked to people who grew up in kind of small country towns uh they yeah they 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 do see some a lot of yeah a lot of accuracy in some of the depictions you know it is there is um there is this kind of heightened nightmarish quality that um is is there as it goes along um but but i think there's definitely a root um truth to it all and i know ted kotcheff went around he'd never been to australia before and he came to australia and he did a lot of he went around and, and kind of went to places and um and yeah definitely talking to the men's and going to frank frank's question about you know masculinity the the film i think was shot in broken hill and it's based on a novel by kenneth cook and i believe the yabba is pretty much based on on broken hill and um and so there uh men outnumber women three to one so it is this space where there are not many women um, and the women pretty much that are there, like you see in the film, you only have really have one character, Jeanette, the daughter of one of the guys that uh, John, the main character, kind of stumbles across at one point. Um, yeah, the women, and that's the whole thing, is the women weren't really allowed to go into the pubs. So all I think all they really would do was like just be at home. Like they really couldn't go anywhere and um and apparently the suicide rate was incredibly high especially and mostly for the women because yeah you would be there and there would just be nothing um and and so yeah and there's definite there's definite um yeah i, I was reading that ted kotcheff asked someone well yeah they, they they told him yeah three to one that's the ratio of men to women and he was like well where are the brothels and they're like no no there's no brothels here um, and he was like, okay, this is interesting. Um, um, but then when he would go out, he would find that people would always try and start, start try to start fights with him because yeah, he's this Canadian guy. He had really long hair, handlebar moustache, 
um, clearly not from there. And the guys would, men would always come up to him and that, but he said they would stick their jaw out, like they would want to fight, but really what they wanted was him to hit them. And he said, it was almost like this, um, you could say there's an, definitely a, an element of homoeroticism, which again is throughout the film, but it's more just like just any form of human contact. The only, and again, that's the whole idea of when you have such a, you know, a male dominated space that violence becomes the only acceptable form of contact. So these men, they, yeah, they would, they would all be fighting each other. And you see that in the film, there's the, that scene where I think it's Dick and Joe are just fighting, wrestling with each other. And again, and, and then I think Doc starts, you know, just, I don't know, beating up like a chair and they've <laughs> trashing this poor, you know, person's pub. Um, but yeah, and and you know, yeah, and there's there's the whole thing of the um the kangaroo hunt, which I'm sure we'll have to talk about, uh, which again is the uh that you know, a lot of when I would talk to people from rural areas, and I remember finding this so shocking, and I, I was probably a teenager when I kind of learned about this, that in country kangaroos are seen as vermin. They're seen as a menace, they attack fences, they eat, you know, vegetation. And that they're seen as vermin and that people would just, you have to, they would cull them, they would kill them all the time. And I remember being so shocked because I grew up, yeah, like in the suburbs where kangaroos were like, yeah, like a national symbol. And there was this, there was a show called Skippy the Bush Kangaroo um, that was made in the 60s, but it was still being shown on the TV in like the 80s, possibly into the 90s. I think they even did some new adventures of Skippy later on. So and that's all about acute. I mean, they and and they are they're they're adorable. They're, they're these beautiful creatures, and and yeah. But the way, but again, I think it's so much about you know the fact that you you have these white men that have come into these spaces, um, this kind of what you could almost be like an un, was well, once was almost like this, oh, not untouched paradise because it, there was people that lived there. There was an indigenous population that lived there, and it was more definitely more I think in harmony with the place whereas when the white settlers come in they dominate and they exploit so the way they're treating these animals these kangaroos is 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 that way and so it's so shocking that scene i remember when i saw it the first time i saw it i remember if i feeling like it went on forever and i watched it and watching it again in preparation for this it's it's quite a short scene but i'm watching it you just feel like i just want this to end and of course, the fact is that they they shot the film, they shot that scene, they went out with actual hunters because they knew that it's a central part of the story is that they, they're such a drunken state, they're going to go out and kill some ruse. Um, and that's the kind of this violent kind of climax. They're so drunk, um, they're just going out there and just no care whatsoever for what they're doing. And... Um, and Ted Kotchiff knew that it was a central part of the story, but how on earth was he going to shoot this? Because there was no way he was ever going to kill a kangaroo just for the film. But he knew that they they have these these cullings happen very often, uh, especially on farm areas and things like that. So they went along with it, and yeah, the story that they you, you hear about, you know, when they um, were filming it, and you know, they are these professional hunters, um, and it was throughout the night and. At first, you know, they're shooting them and killing them quite quickly. Um, and then as the evening wears on, they're starting to miss. And it's really, it's really 
horrifying. And uh, Ted Kotcheff looks and they've gone through like most of a bottle of whiskey. So yeah, they were drunk. Um, and so apparently they're, they're like the cinematographer at one point said, said, oh, the light's gone because they at the, the crew were like, we cannot take this anymore. We cannot do this. We, we can't even just be here. So, um, and I know that, yeah, that apparently soft that they filmed that's not in the film is much worse, but then they did, um, I think they've, they went, they took the footage to like animal welfare, welfare societies and things. And so they were able to use that footage to kind of go, look, this is what's happening. This is not great. Um, so yeah, again, I would love to know like what you thought of that scene and yeah, how, how you kind of dealt with it because it's so horrifying. Full disclosure, I had to leave the room yeah. with an animal lover and Frank mm -hmm. was the one who would alert me when it was finished. Um, yeah. I think I read that the director himself is a vegetarian and that he's yep. involved in animal rights. So mm. I imagine that it was really particularly difficult for him mm. at the same time to face this aspect of reality that also in some parts of the world is still going on. I mean, animal mm. calls are, are still a thing in Europe as well. Um, mm species so yeah very very intense but I, I did have to leave the room briefly which mm. rarely happens to me mm. in a film yeah whereas I did uh, watch the whole sequence uh, I was pretty shocked by um, the images I saw but I managed to keep on looking Mar Marissa and I are both vegetarians so and mm. we're uh, deeply involved uh, in helping animals as much as we can yes yeah so it was not easy. But um, um, beyond the scene itself, I was wondering if this couldn't be read as somehow the relationship between the white men and the aboriginals in Australia. Well, that's 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 a thing is that I think I could say I possibly kind of a, a problem with a lot of Australian films is that there is this um, evasiveness, this, un, you know, as much as Wake and Fright is dealing with you know, aspects of the Australian character that had never been looked at before and kind of shining a light, literally a shining a light. There's lots of light shining throughout the, the film. Um, uh, I think there is often an evasiveness with actually properly dealing with the genocide that occurred. And so sometimes it is displaced onto, uh, yeah, uh, animals um which again is not is not yeah there's a, there's a definite problem with that i think by by not dealing with all, all of this conflation um yeah. that 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 you, you could say is, is happening um yeah so i think in some ways it's it's uh yeah there's still um yeah it's almost that, that that remove from actually really dealing with you know the guilt and the shame that comes with um invasion and genocide which uh, is very much a central um part of how so-called australia was was formed and founded yeah and relating that back to this kind of foreign gaze or outside gaze into australian culture and the aboriginal population i'm thinking a lot about contrasting wake and fright to walkabout mm -hmm. and wondering what you think about that um just in terms of the way that Nicholas Rogue has, for example, you know, integrated this idea of Aboriginal concept of the walkabout. And even though we don't see Aborigines on screen in Wake and Fright, 
to me, it seems almost similar, this idea of the kind of initiation process that one goes through. There's this whole journey that the school teacher goes through in this film. He goes through multiple challenges, but then he loops back to his starting point and he somehow regenerated in a way. He seems to have really accepted his fate and to somehow even have a better attitude. I don't know if you share that Mm. But he goes back to the school almost like, okay, I've been through this holiday time. He never made it to Sydney Mm -hmm. and he's ready to kind of start the cycle again. Do you feel like that might have been inspired by this Aboriginal concept of the walkabout, of the idea of initiation and going through something to mark this kind of passage in life? Well, it's in, I've no, I've never thought of that. But again, it's this whole thing of like it's become completely perverted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what is yeah, what is about um the you know the walkabout is about yeah coming into to manhood especially, and um and what we see in walkabout is just this yeah completely perverted exploitative press you know these yeah there but there is definitely a ritualistic aspect to a lot of what happens. And yeah, like you mentioned, the cycle, it's it's so cyclic. Um, the I mean the the film itself is kind of going going in a loop and the whole idea of cycling of like one more beer, one more beer, one more beer. Um, and you never get to the end. Um, there's never one last drink. Um, yeah, so there's this this cycling aspect, and yeah, um, and again, this it's interesting that the whole thing that yeah, when John arrives, like I said before, he he I think he's very he feels very above everyone. And um, there's that great line that I think um, when he meet, first meets the doc played by Donald Pleasance, Donald Pleasance, who is amazing in the film. Um, and and he kind of said, he says to him at one point, you know, it's death, death at farm here, which is even worse than, you know, death in the mind. And you want them to sing opera as well. Like what, you know, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're having to kind of make do with, with what they've got. But again, it is this kind of, yeah, um, but then also Doc says, I think just before that, the little devils, was it all the little devils are proud of hell or something? Yeah, that also, because they all keep saying, oh, yeah, Yabba, the Yabba, it's the best place on earth, it's the best place in Australia, um, that they're not trying to make it any better and they have, and yeah, it just does feel very much like it's these rituals, but it's rather than, a, I guess, a progression, it's a regression. It's very much a regression. It's a descent. And so, yeah, um, I think... Yeah, it's it's interesting that yeah, there's definitely this ritualistic aspect. That that whole thing of like whenever he's handed a beer, he's handed a beer, and then the guy, you know, the people, the guy looks at him, and he's got to drink it all in one. You can never just like you know have a you know a nice drink. It's always like you've got to down it in one, and it's always yeah, it's it's yeah, sorry. So I was thinking about the, the ritualistic cyclical aspect of the film that you've uh, mentioned uh, and the fact that it is a regression. Um, my feeling it is, is that uh, in, there is indeed something that drags him into personal hell uh, and that leads to a symbolic death. Uh, he, he, he commits suicide and um, mm. it's in turn to a, a rebirth that brings him back to uh, his point of origin and and but i wanted to link this to uh, the aesthetics of the film itself and to the very first shot which is a 360 degree mm. and um, done by the camera um, that shows us that he leaves he starts in the middle of nowhere um, so uh, could you react to this um, connection between the aesthetics and the film itself mm. narrative 
Yeah, because I mean, what Marissa was saying before about the sensorial aspect of the film is so, it's very true. And yeah, the fact that it opens with just this 360 degree pan and there's just kind of just nothing. It's desert, it's arid, there's nothing there. Um, and, and so in many ways you could say it's it's boundaryless, <laughs> that things are going to, things are not, you know, in place in, in order. Um, also, yeah, so much is about the heat of the film. I know Ted Koch have said he didn't want any cool tones. It's all the the um, yellows and reds and oranges, burnt sienna and all that. Those are the kind of the tones that he wanted throughout the film. And um, yeah, the film I think also really captures uh, the feel like the heat. I mean, that's again the one thing that I always remember about growing up in Australia is the summers, the heat it really gets to you. And there's the line that the policeman jock says, oh yeah, we do get a lot of suicides and that they reckon it's the heat. And I, yeah, like when it gets to like above 40 degrees, it's like, it really, it really does something to me. Like for me, I always, it always, it, it actually did fill me with rage. Like I remember you, you're so quick to anger when you're just so hot and you can't escape the heat it really makes you angry. So I think that, and I think this is one of the few films that really captures that feeling of the heat. Um, I just recently um, wrote an essay um, about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's part of the the second site release of, of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It comes with this book and I was asked to write an essay and I wrote, I, I wrote about the, the, the experience or the feeling of heat that you get in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I think that's another, it's another um, film that I think really captures that somehow manages to capture through cinematic devices and technique and style, that feeling of the overbearing heat that you can't escape and that drives you mad. Um, yeah. So I think definitely, yeah, through the aesthetics of, of the film, it's, it's, it's taking you, it's, yeah, it is definitely a sensorial, like, um, affective experience that the film it drags you along with him you feel and yeah it's so much like alcohol fueled because you know when you think about you know again cinema can be used to almost simulate different I guess drug experiences you can have very psychedelic trippy films or kind of stoner films this is such it is yeah like being on a huge bender blacking out not knowing what you're doing finding yourself doing the things you never thought you could do um, and yeah, just the, yeah, there's just the kind of, um, yeah, the, un, you know, yeah, these kind of insanity that comes with, yeah, um, alcohol excess. Yeah. And, and in conjunction with the heat, it's, yeah, it's, it, it all happens. It all works together. Yeah. My feeling is that there is a nightmarish state of consciousness that is depicted in the film, and 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 once again, perhaps, uh, and I'm not a specialist of um, Australian culture, but uh, I was wondering if there could be somehow a link with the dream time of the Aboriginals. Um, I don't, I don't think this film in any way is related to anything from uh, um, Indigenous culture. I think, uh, yeah, it's the that's the that's what's missing, and that's I think many one of the main you know problems that yeah that that it's this it is a very much about a culture that's come in, um, and taken over and erased, or tried to erase, destroy, um, the culture that had been there before. So I think no, I think it's very much yeah very much to do with the the, the alcoholism and the the toxic masculinity all kind of working together. Yeah. 
No, when you said this aspect about the the weather, it just sent me a, a silly anecdote. Um, it, it mm. gave me a flashback to my Irish grandmother living in the United States when I was a child who, when the heat soared and there wasn't any air conditioning at the time, I remember she was this very proper woman who never cursed and all of a sudden she threw a mug to the floor and broke it and cursed because she was frustrated and the weather was just shifting her consciousness, taking it to a place I'd I'd never seen before. And, and this reminded me, I'm not sure how you feel about this, but um, despite their distinctions, there are certain similarities between the United States and Australia that I recognize when I watch their cinema. I think it's notably linked to being in a very large country with car culture and large expanses of space into which one could potentially disappear. And also the fact that they are countries that colonized indigenous populations. And so they share this very violent history that's a part of its landscape and its culture as well. And I'm just wondering how that relates to this film, having actually a Canadian director um, mm. who gives this outlook onto a country which certainly has distinctions that he may not have been aware of. And at the same time, there are there are things that really resonate as well, I think, across the, the two countries. Yeah, so I, I was, again, I was reading because um, Ted Kotcheff actually wrote uh, a book, I think it's called A Life in Film or something like that, or the director's cut, A Life in Film or something like that. Very kind of generic title, um, but it is interesting because he actually is a really interesting director because he directly, like, you can look at what he's directed. It's like all sorts of weird things. Like he did Weekend at Bernie's and First Blood, although First Blood, I think, definitely has some connections to um, Wake and Fright. But yeah, uh, but yeah, um, Ted Kotcheff was saying that, yeah, as a Canadian, although he's of um, Bulgarian descent, um, but uh, he was born in Canada and he always said that um, he, yeah, he did find um, a lot of um, similarities. Yeah, the fact that both of them were, you know, these these colonized by the British, invaded by the British. Um, and he, I think he even said that Australia or can Australia is Canada, no, sorry, Canada is Australia on the rocks. That's what he said that, yeah, that there's very, that there is a definite, um, similarity and, uh, and yeah, it is all about men behaving badly. I mean, I, I think that's, that, yeah, happens. There's definite, there's definite, um, there's definite similarities. I think, like you say, to the history yeah, of, of the U S of Canada, um, also the writer of the film so that I believe the film um started off um with a British production company and then they made it with I think it's also might also be American company involved and Australian company um but uh Ted Kotcheff he moved from Canada to the UK first um because yeah there was pretty much no um industry in Canada in like the like the 60s um, so very again very similar to the Australian um and uh yeah and the uh screenwriter of uh Wake and Fright um was born in Jamaica so also someone born in um a British colony um yeah making this film uh and yeah so I think I think yeah there's there's definite similarities I mean yeah you have um yeah, like you said, the Wild West, the whole idea, like the Western. In fact, there have been some Australian Westerns. In fact, there's a really, really great, what you could call an Australian Western film made in 2005 called The Proposition, um, which was written by Nick Cave, the singer, and um, directed by John Hillcote. That's also a really, really amazing film. Uh, and, yeah, it's very much a Western but set in Australia. So there's, um, 
yeah, a lot of similarities there. I was just did I took part in a panel on eco horror just recently, and um, and there, yeah, eco horror. That's also a form of horror that I think you find in America and in Australia because yeah, there's the similarities. There's the those those kind of um, yeah, those rural those rural spaces, those wide open spaces. Um, yeah, also road movies as well. You know, very much part you find in. A, the US and and Australia as well because again that whole idea of this landscape this also like yeah I would say it's like the lack of boundaries things become unfixed I mean that's kind of central to the road movie is you, often people like their identities change or they kind of drop out of society what's you know completely because they're in this kind of yeah boundaryless space yeah could you perhaps tell us um a little about the uh, possible similarities between new Australian cinema and the new Hollywood uh, to continue on this path of uh, the links between Australia mm. and the United States. And, and just on the side, I also wanted to remind our listeners that Ted Kotcheff is also the, the person who shot the first Rambo movie. Uh, and, and I actually mm. find a lot of uh, links between this film and um, Waking Fright in the sense that uh, they both depict um, a character who is trapped inside a world of chaos, who loses mm. uh, his path, his path and personality. Um, so, yeah, this is something I wanted to to point. I mean, the the, the connection that one finds there. And I was wondering uh, if perhaps w what connects the the two might not be in both cases the Vietnam War. Mm. Yeah, because Australia would also took part in the Vietnam War, so yeah, there's definitely similarities. So um, yeah, I think I think First Blood because I, it was interesting because uh, again I was reading in the the Ted Kotcheff book, um, he was talking about you know how Rambo, uh, the character of Rambo became completely different to what it is in the first in the first in the first film. Yeah, he is this. He's it's he's a Vietnam vet, but he's he's kind of yeah the that's kind of the trauma of war and having to do that is is haunting him, and so he's yeah he's almost can't fit in a American society anymore. Um, he's kind of, and of course you know the Vietnam vets they came home and they were kind of ostracized and yeah and looked down upon um, even though they had they had often you know they had no say in, in really going and going over there um, and the you know no support networks for when they came back. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it was probably very much the case in Australia as well. Uh, I think, yeah, if you think about the new Hollywood of the 70s, I mean, I guess it's the, and yeah, the Australian new wave. I think they they both come from, yeah, they come from like in the 1970s. So they're after, you know, the, you know, all the, all the new cinemas that were happening around the world. Of course, you start, you know, with the French new wave, um, the, you know, the influence of that on American directors. Yeah, especially, yeah, I think European art cinema had a huge uh, influence on New Hollywood and they were kind of fusing that with some of their, you know, influence from classical Hollywood. And then in Australia, yeah, I think, again, you know, maybe the shadow of of, of Britain they had, uh, but, yeah, European, uh, I think, art films definitely influence a lot of the Australian New I think mostly of, like, Picnic at Hanging Rock is the most kind of obvious example where, yeah, it is that, a kind of European art house sensibility put in this very Australian landscape and that they did go on uh, a lot of their films they did play in Cannes like uh, Wake and Fright uh, yeah play, I think it played yeah played in Cannes um, and uh, apparently the only place that liked the film and 
gave the film good reviews when it first came out was France. So actually France was, as always, France seems to get it right first. <laughs> but yeah, they, they, there was a lot of positive reviews. <laughs> there was a lot of positive reviews for Waking Fright in, in France, but not really anywhere else. Um, but yeah, I think, so it's interesting that, yeah, I think the Australian, New Hollywood and the Australian New Wave, it's very much, yeah, the new young cinemas, this new generation of filmmakers who, like I mentioned before, there was the film, the Australian Film and Television Radio School that was making um, that a lot of um, filmmakers like Gillian Armstrong uh, came from from there and they were starting to make their film, first films in the 70s. Um, but also what's interesting, and again, Wake and Fright is central, is that um, Wake and Fright, you can always see that that's kind of the beginning of the Australian new wave, but also in the 70s in Australia, you had what's now called, now often referred to as exploitation films, where you have horror films, you have action films and sex comedies and things like that that um, also made. So that's what I think why the Australian film industry at that time was in a really good place was because they had the art house uh, films that won at Cannes and things like that and then went toured around internationally with festivals. But they also had these the genre films as well. And I think, yeah, I think Wake and Fright, you know, has that, uh, yeah, it's always it is kind of a, an art film in in some respects, but also I think it's you could definitely I feel like it is a horror film. It's one of the most horrific films. So um, so I think it's also you could also say it's one of the first examples of going you know of making genre films of horror of horror, especially for yeah for horror cinema Australian horror cinema. I think it's a really kind of seminal significant film, one of the first one of the first of it, of that genre being made in Australia. And I've seen different scholars who certainly comes up often in relation to Australian New Wave, as you mentioned, but also I have seen it a few times classified as exploitation. Can you tell us why or why not um, it might be associated with exploitation? Uh, well, I think, as I said, it, it's because it's a genre, uh, you could you could very much put it in the uh, category of, of a horror film, that it is kind of a descent in the hell. It's uh yeah it is this kind of you've got I guess you've got kind of these monstrous characters um a monstrous landscape or yeah it's, it's kind of there is something kind of scary about the film so yeah it's, it's interesting that um I mean we talk people talk a lot now about like elevated horror and things like that uh art horror or post-horror whatever um and which is so stupid because yeah the, that's the thing is like it, there's always been horror films I mean horror films were originated from German expressionism so yeah there's always been that kind of art cinema aspect to to, to horror I think um so I think yeah Wake and Fright is is a good I guess example of that that yeah it's interesting yeah it's because yeah a lot of people like even myself I guess I have discussed it as a horror film and I think it's yeah they hadn't really been any horror films really made at all prior to the 70s, really. So this is probably one of the first, I guess, attempts at something uh, kind of horror-like. Um, yeah, so I think it's important in that way. That, that it, And again, that may have been, again, why it was kind of rejected by people that not only was it showing this aspect of the national character, but showing it in this kind of, yeah, this uh, within this context, I guess, of like presenting Australia and and Australians as, as you know horror film characters horror monsters I, I personally read it as a post-apocalyptic film 
uh, to mm. me, is very close to Mad Max in a sense, um, it, with this depiction of uh, an endless desert and the violence that takes place there and civilization being really close to collapse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, you don't really you don't really see much or know much about the characters or about the places. Um, but yeah, I mean, you see at the beginning of the film, it's like the last day of school and all the, the kids are just there, like just obviously just running out the clock and then they, they go and it does seem like such a desolate place. Um, but yeah, but that's what those, those places are like, those really, really small towns. Um, and that's actually something that I think still happens today that teachers, um, when you first when you first start as a, as a teacher, you have to go and serve you know serve <laughs> like a year or so um, in a small kind of country town at the beginning of your kind of teaching career. You have to go and do that for at least a year, um, and yeah, and so these really small towns, like all the kids in the town are all in like one classroom. Um, and there's even that really kind of funny bit where all the kids are going out and then at the end there's this really old kid and he goes see you next year and it's like he's obviously he looks like he's almost in his 20s mm -hmm. um, but yeah so it's just all the kids in the town like one teacher all the kids in the town so all different age groups you've got to teach them um, and yeah what was I trying to figure out where I was going with this so yeah there's this there there it is obviously um what was happening at the time and and still happening in those situations but yeah there's definitely that post apocalyptic aspect that it does always feel like it is that it is all going to kind of on the verge of of collapse or the whole thing is that you know these are supposed to be people that you know brought civilization but actually it's you know it's it's far from it yeah and I just wanted to come back to this point about reading the film as a horror film and looking at those qualities that come out in the film. I wanted to remind our readers that, or our listeners, excuse me, that you, I was thinking of a book, that's why I said readers. I'm thinking mm -hmm. of Lindsay Hallam's book on Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, which is in the Devil's Advocate series, which is dedicated to horror films. So you have a real history also of approaching films that kind of straddle diverse genres perhaps, and really looking at what they bring to the horror genre, what examining them through the lens of horror film can uh, reveal about these films. Well, I think that's why horror is just, it's just the best genre because you can use it in so many different ways. So what I was doing with the book on Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me is that obviously, yeah, that's a David Lynch film and his films are very singular and unique. And yes, they're his vision. But I think for Fire Walk With Me, which was taking you into the experience of a young girl who is abused in her own home um, and killed by her father, um, that, yeah, that the the kind of trauma, um, I mean, I guess horror, like trauma is kind of central to, to so much of horror. And again, when we talk, we talk about, when people talk about, you know, elevated horror and things like that, it's often that these films very much, it seems it's even more overtly now dealing with, with the experience of trauma um and so for 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 me i think yeah hor um yeah exp uh, exploring the um uh, kind of aftermath of traumatic events i think horror really i think it's through again i was, was talking before about how the kind of techniques of cinema can make you experience something i think yeah the 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 whole feeling of i guess of, of trauma is you know something that happen is happening too soon or that you it's repeated and you keep going back to it but also um a way of processing trauma is often through um kind of almost 
fantasy aspects or or your your mind can kind of t again to kind of make you um again kind of work through it or a way that's palatable kind of make kind of monstrous figures so for example in fire walk with me she doesn't see her father she sees this figure of bob um and often you know, when you look at the experience of of um trauma survivors and uh, abuse survivors that yeah that sometimes there is that they miss there's kind of a misremembering um uh or of uh i guess uh What's the, what's the word kind of uh, I guess part of that disconnecting is is to go into kind of almost fantasy spaces or to create figures in place of the per your abuser that because you can't actually reconcile who your abuser is um so I think yeah I think so much of of horror is yeah working through traumas and also what's really interesting aspect of a lot of kind of horror work at the moment um in terms of scholarship and writing is that people um uh, especially women writers are talking about their relationship with horror and how that helps them work through their own kind of traumas and histories i think mostly like there's the amazing book a house of psychotic women by kiela janice um i think is kind of the kind of seminal text for for how to do that um, so I think, yeah, in terms of, yeah, horror just being used in all these different ways. And for, so yeah, my last book, I think I was really interested in how, yeah, horror is used, um, in that film in particular to kind of sh take us into the experience. So we're not observing Laura Palmer. We're with her the whole entire time. We're seeing the well through her eyes. We're experiencing what she's going through. And, um, and then with my new book, um, yeah, looking specifically at revenge in horror cinema and, and how I feel like it connects so much to Australia's history um, that, yeah, again, horror can be used as a way to kind of really um, confront those aspects of history, uh, of national history, um, of, of violence um, that's, that's, you know, attached to pretty much the history of every nation um that yeah horror can be a really um a really great vehicle um to explore those things so that's why i'm so i'm so interested yeah in all aspects of horror that it can it can kind of deal you can deal with everything or or um uh, yeah explore anything through 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 horror and it feels like the public is really ready for that now too you mentioned that you got to see a screening of wake and fright in 2009 and I had read that there was possibly a resurgence of the film in the 1990s. Does that sound right? Maybe a renewed interest in the film? I think I think there was a bit of a renewed interest in the film in the 1990s because everyone thought it had been lost. So mm -hmm. it became one of those lost films um, that I think there had been one television screening of the film possibly in the late 80s or the 90s. So some people had i guess there were some people that had some memories but yeah i remember before 2009 before the restoration before they found this original print i think yeah i do remember hearing about the film and i knew someone who had kind of this old kind of battered copy that maybe they'd somehow find found on the internet so i think definitely there was interest in it because yeah it was this what is this film there's you know some record of this film some people have kind of seen it but we now we can't find it so i think definitely yeah it, it being this yeah there's the lost film so there's always the mystique around around that and then finally and, and then of course the story about how they found the film that it was yeah marked for destruction they 
just managed to save it. And then it got the theatrical release. And I think um, also um, in 2009, it was a Khan classic. Okay. So it was shown in Khan again. I think it was, a, again, the Kotchev book, he was he was saying that uh, only two films have ever played in Khan twice, um, uh, Antonioni's Love and Chora and Wake and Fright. And, uh, and that a lot of the Khan classics was overseen by um, Scorsese, who was in the audience at the original Khan screening and apparently yeah Kotchev was like in the audience and he kept hearing someone going oh oh wow oh my god what are they going to what you know and and at the end of it he kind of talked to someone they're like who was that guy and they're like oh some guy he's like he's only directed one film and like what's his name and they're like oh Martin Scorsese I think <laughs> and so yeah so he remembered the film and was was instrumental in getting it screened again in Khan and around yeah it would have been around 2009 with the restoration so I think definitely since the restoration, it's now become uh, a seen as an absolute classic. Uh, there's a monograph about the film that I haven't been able to get my hands on that was written that I need to uh, read. Uh, but yeah, so there's a lot, there's been a lot written about the, the film now. Yeah, so it's definitely come full circle being this kind of film that if people didn't like at first, it was rejected. Then it became this lost thing and then finally now everyone it's kind of this reevaluation of oh my god this is a classic <laughs> and i know that we see this cycle a lot with different film titles um but aside from the fact that the film has had this kind of institutional acceptance that always helps boost you know its persona um i'm thinking also about the fact that it's an incredibly well made film that i hope people recognize today i think the filmmaking is really excellent the use of colors that you mentioned before all those sensorial qualities but content wise do you think there's a particular reason that it resonates with the public now or why audiences might be ready for it did we have to have other films that came just a little bit later, uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock, Mad Max, mm. etc., to really get to the point where we could appreciate this film? Or do you have any thoughts about that? I think because, I think, yeah, I think it needed time. I think the fact that it was so vehemently kind of rejected when it first came out, people, I think, I guess, especially in Australia, they just weren't ready to deal, they weren't ready to confront this this aspect of themselves. They weren't, they weren't ready. And so I think over time, yeah, definitely, maybe we, and I, and I think the way um, like Australian history, um, the the um, relationship with Australian history, I think has definitely gone through a, a, quite a big change. There was even what was referred to in the nineties called the history wars in Australia, which was about um, the way that, yeah, the way that um, Australian history is characterised. Like when I was a child in the 80s, um, we were told that Australia was, you know, Australia was discovered by Captain Cook um, and that, you know, and I remember in 1988 was the bicentenary, Australia's bicentenary, that Australia only had only existed for 200 years. And so we grew up with this idea that, yeah, that, um, yeah, it was discovered and it was discovered. And, and so there was a complete um, blind spot in terms of what, and it, it actually goes back to when Australia was first discovered, it was declared terra nullius, which means land belonging to no one. And of course, that's not the case. It, the land did belong to, to many people. Um, and so sovereignty was never ceded. 
um, from the Aboriginal people um, and Torres Strait Island and Torres Strait Islanders of of so-called Australia. So, um, yeah. So over time, I think people have started to realise that we have in Australia on January twenty sixth, Australia Day, and um, and that that whole idea of Australia Day again is to um, commemorate the first fleet arriving in Australia. And over the years, you know, more and more, you know, people are protesting, saying, no, they, we shouldn't have Australia Day. And that actually a lot of people refer to it as an invasion day. It's referred to as invasion day that actually there's, you know, by by um, celebrating the um, so-called discovery of Australia, it's actually incredibly traumatizing for uh, especially the indigenous population. Um, also, there was... Um, there was a pro a systematic program of um, taking Aboriginal children from their family, and it's referred to as the stolen generation. That um, a lot of Aboriginal children were taken from their homes, from their families, and, and again, in you know the the history uh, of the past would have been like oh, it's almost like we're doing that for their own good kind of thing, but actually it was a it was a systematic way to um, destroy their culture. Um, and yeah, so um, so um, yeah, so I think the the way we view history and review this um, view this idea of Australia, I think has completely changed um, since 1971. So I think yeah, definitely now we there is more of a reckoning of of the you know the aspects of the Australian character that are often seen as, yeah, she'll be right, mate, um, is that's rooted in in a lot of really problematic things. Also, yeah, I think definitely um, the misogyny that is inherent in Australian culture, that whole kind of, yeah, car culture, lad culture. We've had a lot of kind of awful um, cases of, like, sports stars assaulting women, um, yeah, that have kind of coming to coming to light as well. So, um, yeah, so I think, yeah, in Australia, they've, they've, yeah, a lot of what this film is kind of exploring um, has taken a while. But I, but then I think, you know, as much as specific as Wake and Fright is to Australia, it's always, I always say to my students, the more specific you are, the more universal you become. And so we talk about how, yeah, what, what the film is kind of exploring um, and the way, you know, our relationship with most histories, I think the same, similar things are happening in America. Uh, in Canada, yeah. Yeah, I find it very interesting how this uh, notion of the trauma, which seems to be so important to Australian culture, resonates with what's coming from the United States, among others. Um, and I'm coming back to um, the Australian New Wave and the New Hollywood. And there are two films I'm thinking about in relationship um, to Wake in Fright. That's um, The Deer Hunter, on the one hand, mm. uh, because you have um, among others this scene when Christopher Walken is playing a Russian roulette um, as a way to conjure the, the trauma he has experienced in Vietnam and to me that scene is is highly reminiscent of the gambling scene in Waking Fright. I think there is something in both cases of, uh, that is reminiscent of, uh, of someone um, who is in a personal hell and can't escape that. Um, mm. So th that's the first thing film I'm thinking about. And the second one has just escaped my mind and it will come back in a little while. But uh, first, could you uh, perhaps react with uh, the link between um, that I see between the deer hunter and um, uh, Waking Fright? 
Um, yeah, that's right. I've never thought of that before. That is an interesting connection. Um, yeah, I guess there, there is there because uh, yeah, it's all about you know the men going off to war and and I guess the beginning of the film was like yeah, you're gonna go off and be a hero and then yeah and then the the kind of harsh reality kind of sets in and yeah the fact that it's you know they kind of destroyed by 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 the experience um yeah, and yeah i guess sorry to yeah. interrupt the second one is apocalypse now with this descent mm. to facing the monster that is there at the root uh, of one's personality definitely yeah because yeah this is totally yeah i was just thinking before that waking fright is very much a heart of darkness type of tale it is the going it's not just a kind of geographical journey. It's a psychological journey. It's going into the dark. You see it in the dark side of yourself. Because again, you have yeah, the John Grant. You know, he's he he thinks he's above them all, but yet he's it's just as capable. Um, and yeah, he completely goes along with them. Um, kind of descends with them. I was also thinking like I guess the the Doc character. Um, I don't know. Is he kind of Kurtz like maybe? He's kind of yeah, who he meets there, and and yeah, because Doc's kind of he he um he is you know obviously educated. He's a doctor, but now he's a non-practicing doctor because yeah, he's obviously been kind of disbarred or something. Um, whatever the term for be would be for for doctors who are no longer able to practice. Um, so yeah, so he is that intellectual, but he's kind of like he talks about how yeah, like he's just now I just drink. Um, so he's kind of uh yeah he's he's left all that behind and kind of embraced that part of himself he's like yeah this is how I'm gonna I'm gonna live this way now and uh yeah so and it's also interesting yeah the relationship between John and and Doc uh you know there there is that that scene towards towards the end of the film where they're kind of wrestling with each other and then it kind of cuts the next day so it's very ambiguous so it almost feels like I think possibly some kind of sexual yeah contact had happened yeah had gone to that place so what what had been kind of below kind of subtextual became yeah I think I I mean I I don't know like to me it seems like he wakes up in the morning and he's kind of putting his pants on and walking around and it all seems very like the morning after kind of situation so yeah it's very much like his shadow. Mm. It, it, yeah, it's who he could be. He could, he could like, I don't know if he goes back, he goes back to the school at the end. Like, does he, does he just go on having learned something or does he, will he end up like Doc? Will mm. he ever be able to get out of it? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And it reminds me so much of what some people refer to as bromance between soldiers as well who have lived through mm. these events but have often sometimes saved each other's lives as well and the kind of emotional baggage that that they, they carry and that they don't necessarily share with other people and I'm reminded also of wake and fright the idea that there is a life-saving intervention in terms of the failed suicide attempt and mm. you know the way that that gets carried through as well in in this kind of homoerotic or, or bromance relationship however we might want to refer to it in the film yeah and there's also, I remember one thing that shook me watching the film again, um, is there's almost, I don't know if you almost like, like this kind of Oedipal aspect to it all. Um, like, I don't know, like the, yeah. Cause I just remember like after there's this one bit, you know, 
towards the end, like kind of after the big kangaroo hunt, and then they have the wrestling, the one guy wrestles with the kangaroo, and then they kind of say to John, oh, you you, you go, like, you're a man now, you go out there and you kill this kangaroo, and he says it's a baby and it's badly wounded. Um, and then he, yeah, and then he kind of stabs the 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 kangaroo, not, not for real. Um, and then I remember it cuts, and then it cuts back to him, and he's in the back of the car, and he's kind of almost in a fetal position with a beer bottle. And I remember it it, it just seemed very like he was, yeah, he'd again regressed to this kind of type, this whole thing that was supposed to be like, you're a man now, actually brought him back to this kind of childish, infantile state. And then not long after that, there's another shot of Doc in, is in the back of the car and he's pouring more beer into his mouth. And again, it's like, it's like a, he's like a baby now. So it's just there's 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 there, I mean yeah it's so you know multi-layered all the things that are going on all the kind of aspects of all the relationships and what's happening and yeah the rituals that he's that they're going through yeah and, and Doc is the one who provides him lodging and food to really mm. add wife um, uh, to him I mean traditional wife mm. yeah because he feeds him and yeah so it's he's he's this very interesting figure in relation to John, like he's like mother and possibly lover and protector and also um, tempter. Um, yeah, it's 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 all kind of going on in there. But I, I love what you said earlier, maybe just to draw to a conclusion about the idea of universality, because I do think that despite all the cultural specificities of the film, as you mentioned, there is this real sense, I think, in the late 60s, early 1970s, I sometimes have trouble articulating it, but I think there's something of the cultural zeitgeist, especially in Western cultures, of the kind of cultural upheaval, the reckoning of the past that people are beginning to grapple with, and this really sh generational shift in terms of people's worldview. And it's just so interesting to me the way that those resonate across countries in cinema. And for me, this is one film that I was just so happy to discover because it really does that for me in terms of reflecting that kind of shift that we notice at this specific moment in time. Yeah, and I, I think, yeah, it was definitely, yeah, that generational shift that the, um, yeah, it was this younger generation. Also, I guess when you think about like filmmakers and filmmaking uh, before that, you know, it was probably kind of older, older, older people making films. And this was kind of the first generation that were going to film school um, and had grown up very cinematically literate. And yeah, there were, yeah, younger people making their films. So um, I think, yeah, I, I'm not sure how old Ted Kotcheff was, but he was—he was quite young when he when he made when he made Waking Fright*. And I think, yeah, it was this definite shift of, um, and also I think it was also because, yeah, those, especially like kind of classical Hollywood films, they were no one was going to see them anymore because they seemed so old-fashioned. So you have to you have to kind of uh, cinema has to kind of change. To kind of to kind of keep its audience, you do have to kind of modify things or change things up, because otherwise you're making the same thing over and over. But both aesthetically and thematically, it's such an interesting film. And maybe, unless you have another question, Frank, maybe to conclude, I was wondering, do you feel there are aspects of this film that have yet to be discussed or studied in a way that you would like to see? Like, what what's missing from the conversation about this film? Oh, 
Um, I'm trying to think. Or has it been so fully embraced that maybe that's not necessary? Because I mean, I think I think it definitely has been it definitely has been embraced now, and there has been quite a lot written about it. Um, but but as you mentioned before, the you know maybe maybe it more as a as a horror film. Although there has been some written about it, but I don't know. Yeah, I think I think um, because it's now over fifty years old, I think possibly it would be interesting. Like maybe just just uh newer generations younger generations how they react to the film that might be an interesting aspect that yeah the, as we go get more farther and farther away from when the film was made and the fact that like you say it was so much about that the shifts at that time and the shifts in filmmaking at that time that maybe it's just like yeah how does that film endure because yeah now it's come to the point where now it's this almost like establishment kind of classic um Will that change or will that continue? It, it, yeah, that might be a really kind of interesting way just to see how newer audiences, as they discover the film, what how they read it. Yeah. Before we conclude, could you perhaps tell us about your current and future projects? All right. Um, yeah, so I'm working on this book um, on revenge in Australian horror cinema. Um, that's coming out through the uh, through Liverpool University Press through their series um, Horrors Hidden Histories. Um, or is it called Hidden Horror Histories? I can never remember. But it's a series of books coming out through Liverpool University Press, um, although that's going to take me a few years. Um, yeah, so um, that's the big the big book project that I'm working on. Uh, also, I've been uh, writing some things for different Blu-ray releases. Um, so, yeah, there's the big um, special edition of Texas Chainsaw Massacre that's coming out through Second Sight, that was a really great um, article to 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 write for them. Um, what else is coming out? Um, oh, uh, I've been doing a few audio commentaries. Um, there's one on uh, Martyrs, um, which was released through Umbrella Entertainment, which is an Australian Blu-ray company. Um, uh, I also did um, one with um, Kat Ellinger and Miranda Co Cochran, who was on your show. Um, we did a couple of commentaries together for the film Censor and the film Tragedy Girls. Um, yeah, what else have I been doing? I'm working on something at the moment about European vampire films of the 60s and 70s. It's kind of like, it's one of those situations where sometimes I just get asked to do different things. And I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm going to do this. And then it's always a great way to kind of suddenly find yourself going down some strange rabbit hole of research and and yeah but yeah pretty much always i'm working in the horror area that's kind of what i'm what i'm mostly kind of doing at the moment good luck with your current projects and we're going to look for those publications thank you so much for joining us today thank you very much and our next guest will be holly payton with whom we'll be discussing buffy the vampire slayer Thank you for listening to After Images. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow After Images podcast on social media. 